A couple of days ago, every single Republican on the Senate Banking Committee opposed the nomination of Sarah Bloom Raskin to be Federal Reserve's top banking cop. Alleged Democrat Joe Manchin also said he wouldn't support her. Why? Because she's somehow unqualified? No, Ms. Raskin is actually deeply qualified, and she was Deputy Secretary of the Treasury during the Obama administration. As it turns out, the great and unforgivable sin is the fact that she holds the position, which, by the way, is shared by most financial regulators and central banks in the United States, that financial institutions must consider how, in her words, existing instruments can be used to incentivize a rapid, orderly, and just transition away from high emission and biodiversity-destroying investments. In other words, we need to take climate change into account when figuring out how our economy needs to change. But such an idea is completely out of bounds as far as the fossil fuel industry is concerned and its mascots in Congress. 100% of Republicans and one corporate Democrat in the Senate are bought and paid for by that same industry. The bottom line is that their greed makes them short-sighted because apparently they care more about taking money from big oil than the future of the human race. And it blinds them to the fact that catastrophic climate change will make the world uninhabitable, not just for our children and grandchildren, but for theirs as well. Corporate greed is also behind a project by Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, a professor at Yale University, who's put together a list tracking the activity of American corporations in Russia. Since Sonnenfeld published his list, over 400 companies have withdrawn from Russia entirely, while dozens of others have completely suspended operations. That's the good news. There's a third category of companies that are scaling back, at least, like Dunkin' Donuts, Johnson & Johnson, Taco Bell, Hyatt, Marriott, but they need to be convinced to do better. The fourth category consists of 33 companies that have dug in their heels and refuse to stop investing in Russia. Think about that. They are refusing to stop helping Russia in its illegal war of aggression against the innocent people of Ukraine. You may not recognize the names of the companies and corporations, but you will recognize their products. First, we have Dixie Cups and Brawny Paper Towels, which are made by Coke Industries. We have Bacardi, Reebok, Brooks Brothers, Nine West, Avon Cosmetics, and LG Appliances. The whole point of the sanctions, of course, is to bring the Russian economy to its knees. By staying in Russia, not only are these companies making money off of a war criminal and his corrupt regime, they're helping to perpetuate the war by propping up the Russian economy, thereby undermining the sanctions put in place by the Western alliance in order to line the pockets of their executives and shareholders. Don't be fooled by those Republicans who have so belatedly become willing to support Ukraine or by those corporations that still somehow need to be convinced that it's wrong to keep financing the Russian slaughter in Ukraine. These Republicans and their ally Joe Manchin, these corporations, which are not people as the Supreme Court would have us believe, but are indeed run by people, have so much fucking blood on their hands that even Lady Macbeth would be horrified.
When I was a kid, I liked nothing more than the sweetest cereal on the planet. Um, but when my daughter was young, the last thing in the world I wanted was for her to be eating the stuff I grew up on because it was so incredibly unhealthy. I wish Magic Spoon had been around when she was little, but even though she's 20 now, you know, I still want her to get a healthy breakfast and nothing beats Magic Spoon. On the one hand, she absolutely loves it. She loves the taste. She loves how sweet it is. She loves how it it is almost exactly like the kinds of cereals we remember um, from when we were kids. And what I love about it is that it has 13 to 14 grams of protein per serving, only four net grams of carbs in each serving. It only has 140 calories. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. So if you eat it with your favorite oat milk or almond milk, that is an incredibly healthy way to start the day. Grab the variety pack. They have four amazing flavors. There's cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And yes, I'm telling you, they taste exactly like the stuff you remember from when you were a kid without putting you in a diabetic coma. Just go to magicspoon.com slash Mary to grab a variety pack and try it today. Be sure to use our promo code Mary, that's M-A-R-Y, at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in its product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if for whatever reason you don't like it, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of totally guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash Mary. Use the code Mary to save $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode of The Mary Trump Show. As usual, there is so much going on, but I literally can't think of anybody I would rather speak to right now than uh, my next guest. He is a brilliant investigative journalist. He's won a Pulitzer Prize. He's written four New York Times bestselling books. I've read all of them. They're phenomenal. He's a co-founder of dsupreport.org. And um, he basically understands Donald Trump better than pretty much anybody else. I mean, I think he's one of the handful of people who really get the man who is Donald Trump. David K. Johnston, it is such an honor to have you. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me on, Mary, and those kind words. Well, you know, they're they're well-deserved. Um, and I, ha- I have a confession, though. Uh, <laughs> when, I, when I saw that your uh, new book was coming out, it's called The Big Cheat. It was published, I believe, in November 2021. Uh, it is definitely a must-read, so everybody go get it. Um, I, I bought it, but I couldn't read it right away. <laughs> because I was afraid it was going to make my head explode. And guess what? <laughs> when I finally did read it, it made my head explode. Um, for those of you who don't know, and you should, uh, David has, re- has written three essential Donald Trump books. The first in 2016 called The Making of Donald Trump. The second in 2018 called It's Even Worse Than You Think. And then The Big Cheat, as I just mentioned. So David, you have... Um, taken on the unenviable task of systematically laying out not just the crimes of one man, but the weeks 
and corrupt systems that have allowed him to get away with these crimes. One, how have you managed to stay sane? (laughs) And two, uh, one of the things I really want to get into with you tonight is why don't more people get it? Okay. Well, uh, I certainly uh, suffer severely from Trump fatigue. Um, When Donald made his latest presidential announcement in 2015, uh, I had a whole plan for the next five years of my life. Uh, I was finishing up a book, which I'm now finishing up, uh, that proposes a whole new federal tax system that is simpler, cheap proof. Every, Every expert who's looked at it, including tax administrators, all say it would work. But as I watched Donald uh, come down the escalator at Trump Tower and listen to, you know, his lies beginning with thousands of people are here, which is impossible in the lobby of that building, it suddenly hit me that Donald's run in 2012 had primed up, primed him for something uh, devastating. In 2012, when he announced he was running, only two journalists, Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC and me in print, kept saying, he's not running for president. He's running for a new contract with NBC. Mm. And nobody listened to us. Um, I remember running into several prominent political journalists in green rooms and telling them that. And they go, okay, well, thank you. And and politics reporters get paid to cover the horse race. They don't get paid to do policy or investigative reporting or anything like that. They get paid to cover the horse race. Yeah. And I and, and then of course he announced in 2012, well, you know, I should be president. There's there's no one else who should be president, but right now my TV show needs me more. And the politics reporters had egg on their face. So I knew this time around they would do what they did. They dismissed him as a vanity project. And you may recall in the show, The West Wing, the fictional president, uh, Jed Bartlett, in one of the episodes says, I wasn't supposed to be president, you know, but we were just in to push the issues. But, you know, we began knocking off the other candidates one by one. And that's what what Donald did. So that day, I just said, uh, and I talked to my wife about this at the time, I said, you know, I... I I know him. I understand him in a way I don't think any other journalist does. And I have a duty. I have to do this. It's not what I want to do, but I have to do this. And and we also talked about, as he became president, dangers involved in this from some wacko uh, doing something. Those are the only people you really have to worry about. But I said on national TV, after Donald had described me as the journalist he hates most in the world, I said, you know, if he can come up with an excuse to get me off the streets on some national security thing, uh, uh, he will. Yeah. And um, we certainly agreed I was not going to set foot during his presidency in uh, Russia or Saudi Arabia. I wouldn't fly in a Saudi airplane because those would just be foolish things to do. Right. So. Yeah, uh, it it. And it's still scary. You know, it's it's not that um, his, he lost his influence when the Republican Party finally came to its senses and, uh, you know, decided to go in a completely different direction. He's as relevant. He all but declared his candidacy for 2024, which um, I'm sure 
uh, send a chill up your spine as it did mine. If for no other reason, then I'm really tired. <laughs> really tired of having uh, to talk about. Yes, that. and and he makes these unbelievably inane comments. Uh, his suggestion that we put Chinese insignia on American jets and bomb Moscow and then blame the Chinese. I mean, that is this is typical of Donald. That is like junior yeah. high school thinking. But in my view, Donald has lived uh, not Groundhog Day, but Groundhog Nightmare. He has been trapped his whole life in that year we all went through of puberty. Mm -hmm. And he's been stuck in it emotionally his whole life. That's why he talks about women the way way he does. Uh, It's it's why he engages in these petty sort of junior high school behaviors. It was one of the first things that I recognized about him when I first met him 34 years ago and immediately said, this guy's going to be important and started building files on him the way I did on some other prominent Americans, Jack Welch at GE, uh, Daryl Gates, the LA police chief, Baron Hilton, who uh, Mm -hmm. ripped off starving children for two thirds of a billion dollars, or he was going to, he finally uh, had to give it back uh, at his death. Yeah, uh, he's in good company, <laughs> is Donald. Um, so you, um, obviously, you've, re- you've written about many more things, but um, I do want to focus on um, sort of the, the way the, the myth of Donald has been and continues to be perpetuated, even though most of us paying attention understand just to what degree it's a myth. Um but also the sense that uh, the walls are closing in. Are the walls closing in? You wrote a great piece, uh, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, um, I believe for the Daily Beast in February um, about the fact that prosecutors were, were zeroing in. And you mentioned um, Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg and that case. But since then, uh, it looks like, you know, especially with the resignations of two very high profile prosecutors who were working on the case, that nothing may come of it. Um, does that concern you uh, in, I, I mean, not just specifically to that case, yeah. but in general, given Donald's track record of, you know, s- dancing between the raindrops? Yeah. Donald has an amazing track record of slipping out of the hands of law enforcement. I mean, is, as my f- friend, the late, great Wayne Barrett reported long ago, uh, decades ago, you know, in his 30s, Donald escaped four federal grand juries. Um, the piece was in the New York Daily News, by the way. Oh, I'm sorry. And that's okay. It's, uh, that's where it is. It's readily available if people want to read it. And it called Donald's Turn in the Dock. And a couple of days after that, it came out that the two top prosecutors for the Manhattan District Attorney resigned as a matter of principle. Alvin Bragg, the newly elected uh, district attorney, uh, evidently from subsequent reporting in the New York Times by very, very good reporters, uh, said he didn't think they had the case to make a conviction. Uh, It's very important to understand what they were investigating. Uh, Donald claims to be the world's greatest expert of all time on taxes. Mm-hmm. I'm a worldwide recognized expert on taxes. I've lectured on taxes on every continent but Antarctica. And I have this you know, proposed new federal tax system. Um, 
Donald doesn't know anything about taxes. So despite that, if you brought a tax charge against him, his lawyers would simply say, oh, you know, Donald Trump was simply puffing. He was, you know, puffing up his image. He just did what the accountants and the lawyers told him to do. Well, I know that's not true because Donald has had two trials for tax fraud, but they were civil, not criminal. I was the one who broke that story. And in one of those trials, his decades-long tax lawyer and accountant, Jack Mitnick, testified that Donald had forged the tax return that was filed with the government. It wasn't the one Jack Mitnick prepared, but it had Jack Mitnick's uh, signature put on. Yeah, Jack Mitnick was my accountant, too. So That's right. Now, he did the whole family, right? And with a photocopy machine, Donald put his signature on it. And the reason I was particularly attuned to this was the second biggest, second big investigation early in my career when I was in my early 20s was of a corrupt Michigan legislator, a state senator, who used a photocopy machine to put his name on his predecessor in the legislature's widow's records, told the state Supreme Court he was going to die within weeks from a, to this day, always fatal form of cancer. And by motion of the court, after he miserably failed the bar exam, they made him a lawyer. He suddenly miraculously was cured, and he used that law license to cheat the widow out of her multimillion-dollar fortune, among many other misdeeds. But the, the message never got out to the public in any meaningful way. I wrote it in the Daily Beast. That was something I did write for the Daily Beast. I told all sorts of nationally known journalists who I know about this. Nobody went after it. Nobody raised it because politics reporters don't cover those things. They just cover the horse race. Right. And in the case of the Manhattan Grand Jury, which is not the only case facing Donald, right. it appears that the prosecutors got off onto the issue of his inflating assets to banks. If the banks didn't suffer any harm in the time period he's describing, that's not a case you're going to win. But inflating assets to the banks relates to, did you uh, understate those same assets for property taxes and get a benefit there? Did you uh, play with the asset values when you made either insurance claims or when you paid premiums on your properties? And they, I thought quite Clearly, they were bringing what's called an Article 460 case. That's the New York State racketeering statute. And let me just digress to say, I'm not a lawyer, but I've been a professor of law now for 13 years at Syracuse University's College of Law. And the New York Times reporting makes it pretty clear they were just narrowly focused on this one area. Now, there's also some question about Alvin Bragg and his friends and why he isn't pursuing this. Um, But even the collapse of that case uh, doesn't clear Donald. Uh, Mimi Roca, the former career prosecutor for the federal government in Manhattan. Yeah, she's amazing. and That's where I was going with this. So thank you. She's now the elected DA in Westchester County. She's pursuing a case involving, among other things, Donald uh, claiming, uh, as Brian Ross and I reported separately a long time ago, uh, and a, a guy at the local daily paper that, his golf course in Westchester is only worth 1.3 million. His federal forms say 50 million. He has repeatedly said in public more than 100. 
Well, you know, the house I'm sitting in right now, I challenged the property tax assessment on it, but the difference was $30,000. Right. It was a 10% range in the value of the house, roughly. 1.3 million, 50 million, 100 million, that's a badge of fraud. Yeah. Uh, he's under a civil investigation by the Attorney General of New York, Letitia James. She will be pursuing her case. She's made that very clear. She actually can criminally prosecute him if Governor Hochul gives her criminal authority. If mm -hmm. Alvin Bragg says, I need to be out of this case, she acquires criminal authority. And I think there ought to be a lot of discussion about why isn't Kathy Hochul giving criminal authority to Letitia James, even forcing it on her if she would rather do a civil case. Then he's under criminal investigation with a single purpose grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, right. which basically overlays Atlanta. Fannie Willis is the elected uh, DA there. There's been talk among Republicans in the Georgia legislature of passing a special law to prevent that case, which would be an outrage uh, by any standard. And then he's got a serious civil investigation by uh, Carl Racine, the attorney general of Washington, D.C., they raised $107 million of charitable funds for the inaugural. Uh, Barack Obama raised less than half that. He had eight balls and an A-list of all sorts of entertainers. And you have to pay to bring these people in. The musicians themselves typically get paid, not the, the headliner. And um, a much bigger affair. And they couldn't even spend $53 million. And right. I report in The Big Cheat how Melania Trump's former best friend, then best friend, uh, Stephanie Wolkoff is asked by Rick Gates, convicted felon, uh, deputy to Paul Manafort, about taking money off the books. And it was so stunning to her that they asked this after she'd already made it clear she was a straight arrow, right. that she was taken aback for a second. And then she said, I'm not going to do that. She, she knows she's not going to commit a crime, but that they would be so brazen as to do that. So Donald is not out of the woods. Right. In addition to that, the January 6th committee is clearly coming up with extensive evidence uh, that I, th I think a lot of people will turn off to, but that will clearly document that January 6th was an attempted coup by Donald Trump. He just was incompetent. He didn't know how to pull it off. Uh, but, you know, John Eastman, who I debated once, uh, uh, and in the words of one of the students, wiped the floor with him. He's a law school dean. I'm a mere lecturer in the law. And he just he didn't. He had lots of ideology. Didn't have lots of understanding and facts. Right. Um, he 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 could still be gone after for that. I think the Attorney General Merrick Garland is really hoping a state or local government will pursue this. But you know, if not, it's his duty to step up to the plate. Right. And I'm a big believer in the concept of duty and honor. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I don't see very many people in the Republican Party who care about either one of those things. Donald certainly doesn't. And um, he doesn't even know what it means. No, he doesn't. And, and I, in a way, um, I mean, I don't want to let him off the hook for anything, but party leadership certainly took advantage of that. Oh, and, uh, yeah. Right. Well, you know, one um, thing, Gary, you notice the party is paying legal bills for Donald and his son, Don Jr., for events, matters that are pre his becoming president. Why would they do that? Why would they take donors' money to do that? Well, I think the answer to that is obvious. 
they're terrified that he will run as a third party candidate, which would guarantee a Democrat. They, right. they could run anybody and they, right. they would win the White House. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if he'll do that or not, because when he gets indicted, when he gets wrapped up in litigation, active litigation, which will hound him till the day he dies, I suspect, unless he lives to be 100, uh, might happen in uh, how long his parents lived. Um, we're, we're a quite long-lived bunch, generally yeah, speaking. Yeah. Um, uh, so. Yeah. Well, I just I want to get back because I, I think that is important. I, it, it, they're paying tributes to him, essentially. It's yes. all very authoritarian. But I, I want to get back for a second to a couple of things you said. And a quick aside, uh, in your talking about the um, inauguration fund and the shenanigans and the law breaking that went on, I, I want people to understand that that one of the things you do so well is take people through an event like that step-by-step build the evidence. It's so compelling. And, and again, that's one of dozens of, of instances of criminality. One of the things I, I, in in the three Donald books, everything is tied to a public record, a court document, a letter he wrote, except for Donald's and my one-on-one conversations, all of which I wrote about at the time. And my reporting is, you know, I'll go, I went back and checked, made sure what I wrote in the books is consistent with our report at the time. There's no unnamed sources because mm-hmm. there's so much about Donald. There's no need to do that. Exactly. Provided you understand the relevant laws or can learn them and you understand the, the, uh, the context of them to other events. Yeah. And that's really important. Unfortunately, I think um, people who need to be convinced are necessarily reading your books or listening to this podcast <laughs> because they yep. don't they don't want to know. Um, the other problem, though, and and this is something that that is extraordinarily frustrating to me as somebody who's known him my whole life and as somebody who grew up in New York, and I'm sure to you as it was to Wayne Barrett, uh, who have been keeping track of his business. Uh, dealings for so long. Why is it so hard to get people, one, to get people to understand just how wrong everything they think they know about him is, and two, to get indictments with real teeth? Like, why is Alvin Bragg not going through, uh, going through that and empowering his prosecutors? Why is the governor not granting that power to Letitia James, who really does seem to want to take this to its logical conclusion. And what is going on with Merrick Garland? I mean, it, it, it's all so frustrating. Well, let me go back to Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle, written at the dawn of the 20th century. It was about the meatpacking industry and the mistreatment of the workers and how many of them died unnecessarily. And we got from that the second Federal Meat Act. There had been one earlier. Uh, And Upton Sinclair said, I shot an arrow at America's heart and hit its stomach. Um, People were worried about themselves and whether their food was safe. They weren't worried about the workers, their fellow citizens. Donald has fertile ground for what he's trying to do as a would-be dictator. 90% of Americans had a smaller income, adjusted for inflation, but had a smaller income in 2018 than in 1973. 
Uh, basically, in 2018, they only got 50 weeks pay, and then they went two weeks with no pay. Uh, at the same time, in 1973, healthcare was not particularly expensive. Right. Um, and most employers provided it entirely on top of your wages. Of course, today, most employers take a big chunk of your wages mm-hmm. uh, for the healthcare. Um, for every dollar, people added an equity in their homes during those 40-some years. They took on $2 of debt. That's not a prescription for prosperity. That is a prescription for being on the hamster wheel forever. And, of course, pensions, pretty much gone for most people. And many of them that are still around are systematically being looted while the government says, oh, no, that's perfectly legal what you're doing by selling the pension plan to an insurance company. Uh, And you lose your federal guarantee of your income. And Donald is appealing to people who they're angry legitimately. Why am I worse off than than dad and mom and grandma and grandpa? I went to work every day. I did everything I'm supposed to do. Why why am I in all this debt? Why do I have no savings? Why am I living paycheck to paycheck? That's one part of it. And it totally applies to the bottom 50% and to many people in the bottom 90. And then we have had this veneer of progress over the civil rights movement, the women's movement, and the religious tolerance movements that arose after World War II. And Donald just ripped it off and exposed that the country is full of people who want to be able to use racial slurs, religious slurs, who want to tell women, you know, your place is to sit down, shut up, and do whatever your husband says to do. Mm -hmm. And those that's a toxic mix of things. But as with Upton Sinclair, this is about their emotions. It's not about reason. And we specifically don't teach critical thinking skills in school. People who go to college, who go to law school, who go to philosophy degrees, they learn critical thinking skills. Journalists learn them. But most Americans, there's no teaching of it. In fact, you know, if you try to engage in high school as I did on a critical level with some teachers, you'll find yourself in the office just for uh, being being difficult or <laughs> contradicting the, you know, presenting. Here's a book that says what you're telling us, teacher, isn't true yeah. or at least questionable. And so it, he appeals to people on a gut level. And it's very hard to change that sort of attitude, Mary. Very hard. It is. Uh, you mentioned that we don't teach critical uh, thinking, although apparently people are easily convinced that we teach critical race theory, which we don't yes. in K through 12 uh, schools. Yes, I would love explaining to a third grader how the design of a statute that appears to be race neutral actually disadvantages black people. I mean, I can do that for you, but, yeah. you know, a third grader would go, huh? Uh-huh. Yeah, just say, wait till you get to law school, kid. <laughs> That's what I would have to say. Right. Um, so... Yeah, I, I've always said that Donald didn't uh, change the Republican Party. He revealed it for what it was. Yes. Um, yep. But I, I have to confess to being surprised um, that there are so many people who fell for what he was selling. And again, it was $62 million in 2016. It was $74 million, which was a devastating a thing to have to grapple with uh, in 2020. So, I, again, I don't necessarily think that he's he's done anything new, except um, give people permission not to have to feel bad about it. Right. 
Right. No, I agree, exactly agree with you about that. I mean, in my view, uh, Donald is the greatest con artist who ever lived. He conned his way into the White House, the most powerful position in the world. And the key to being a successful con artist, and I've written about lots of them before I met Donald, is you persuade people to believe something that isn't so. And one of the things we know about con artists is uh, there are many cases of this. Um, a housewife loses all her money to a Nigerian prince scam, or a, a husband blows all the money on some fictitious investment where he gets cleaned out. And often people will hide this from their spouse. They're so ashamed and embarrassed. Uh, the the leading leader of the anti-tax protest movement, Erwin Schiff, was a tax shelter salesman in Connecticut. He sold insurance, but it was basically tax shelter products. Mm-hmm. And a con artist ripped him off, and he spent the rest of his life writing books and denouncing the government. And we know that, in fact, that wasn't the reason because he put his psychiatrist notes into the public record. And the psychiatrist said, you know, he couldn't admit that he had been and all his clients had been stripped bare by a con artist. And it, to, to the, if you're a solid Trumper to say, oh, my goodness, the man doesn't know anything. He has put our national security in danger repeatedly. Uh, he has given away the most sensitive intelligence secrets to the Russians, all of which are thoroughly documented. You would then have to say of yourself, I'm a fool. And that's right. really hard, really hard. People can do it, but something's got to happen that's really dangerous. Instead, what people do is they double down. And yeah. my business, News, we compound this by the way we write things. Mm-hmm. So we'll quote Donald and then take it apart. No, the right way to do it is you tell people, we're about to tell you something uh, that Donald said that is provably not true. Now your mind is set up to be skeptical. Then yes. you tell, then you take it apart. And there's there's research by cognitive scientists, by like George Lakoff at the University of California, mm-hmm. showing this, that the way you present. It, 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 this is not unlike many other things. I mean, if you walk up to somebody who they don't know their spouse has died. I've been in that position as a reporter, their spouse or their child. You walk up and say, hey, Mary, your husband's dead. You know, you will psychologically suffer from that for the rest of your life. Instead, right. you say, you know, Mary, I, uh, there's something, you know, you need to know. And, um, and you just slowly let it come upon themselves and mm-hmm. then you confirm it to them. That's right. the kind way to do it. And and we, so in my business, we compound this by the way we do it. I completely agree. And, you know, there there is, it is a psychological, a measurable psychological phenomenon that people just, in, in layperson's terms, people hate being wrong. And, yeah, you know, they don't want to point it out. And they, do, of course, it hurts. It's, humili- it's humiliating, you know, just like it's weirdly, because uh, this also, I think, compounds it. It's humiliating to f- recognize that you've been fooled by another person, even right. though it shouldn't be because you were harmed, right? right? You shouldn't be humiliated, but people are. So we have both of those things going on because these people who support Donald have been lied to so much by so many different people right. that I think it makes their ability to to grasp what's actually happening now and what's happened to them Almost impossible. Well, he, um, he, benef- he benefits me from one more aspect of this, which mm-hmm. is that um, once he sets the narrative and it's simple, 
it's easy to glom onto that. So Hillary Clinton comes along with, and I, I thought, you know, she'll be an okay president. Her primary, if she becomes president, her focus will be on two things. She's going to make Vladimir, Vladimir Putin pay dearly mm-hmm. for taking Crimea, and she's going to be the children's president. We're going to see the whole federal government focus on the development of children and the future. How terrible but, would know, that have been? Yeah, horrible idea. She, uh, I'm, I'm being facetious. We're both being very sarcastic. Yes, about, but yeah. as you know, Donald has these big ups and downs in his moods, and he's fundamentally lazy. I mean, he makes Ronald Reagan look like a hardworking guy. So during the 2016 campaign, he disappears for days at a time. He's only seen or out in public when he calls Fox or some radio show on the telephone, but he's holed up in Trump Tower. Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton was out there every day to the point where she literally wore herself to exhaustion, Mm -hmm. and he keeps calling her lazy. Donald projects. If he says Hillary Clinton's lazy, he's really telling us he's lazy. She has no stamina. No, he's the guy with no stamina. And by doing that, there was no response to that. So he comes across as this champion of the forgotten man and woman, and I alone can solve your problems, the hero figure from Dune, the movie. And Hillary Clinton, to her own fault, comes across as blah, 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 blah. Oh, and blah, blah, blah. And and I have another 21-point plan here. And let me tell you more, blah, blah, blah. And that's just a great environment for him because he can just give out simple nostrums. And he tests them. And many of his nostrums, by the way, came right from me, word for word, things that were economic policies that I recommended. He put a twist on them. Mm -hmm. They came right from my work. He didn't read my economics books. But he mm-hmm. saw me on TV, and I know because of intermediaries who called me, they'd say, Donald's talking about X, Y, Z. What, 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 what is this about? He said, you said. Uh, he was testing those things out. So I, by the way, bear some responsibility for his success in getting at people. Well, I think we can let you off the hook for that. <laughs> there are plenty of people much more, much more responsible for what happened. Um, and I, I mean, I would disagree slightly. Um, I think... Hillary Clinton maybe gave people too much credit and actually thought people cared. Uh, you know, she yeah. would give brilliant policy speeches and instead, and again, getting back to this issue of how people are primed by media, uh, right. mainstream media, um, she would be giving brilliant policy speeches and they wouldn't be covered because there would be a, a camera on an empty podium waiting for Donald. Or- yeah, no, I agree with that. There's no question that television was completely enamored of Donald because literally their research showed the minute they turned away, people switched to, you know, the, watching Law and Order or, or um, the, bat, you know, horrible, that horrible shows Bachelor and Bachelorette, right. like denigrate marriage. Yeah. Um, I, you know, unfortunately, I don't think there's anything we can do about this now. I, I think that die has been cast, those die have been cast and, and um, going forward, uh, whoever runs on the Democratic side needs to figure that out, right? Needs to figure out how to get the message across without complexity, which is very sad um, until a couple of generations from now when children have been taught critical thinking and media literacy and all that stuff. Um, but part of what the problem now that I see is uh, the the way things are framed, as you mentioned, because it's not simply by 
not um, setting up the analysis properly, like by not saying, okay, this is an absolutely untrue statement. This is what he said. And then this is why it's untrue. They're also asking questions that um, legitimize things that should not be able to be legitimized. Instead of saying, why is he being allowed? Why should he ever be allowed to run again? The question is, is he going to run? Which legitimizes his ability to. Is that right? Do you see see that as well? I I think you're right about that. And I I have for years written that the Democrats, and I'm not a Republican or a Democrat, okay? I was a registered Republican for many years just because where I live in Western New York, the primaries are more interesting in that party. <laughs> yes. Um, the, um, the, the Democrats don't know how to market. Right. The, the Republicans have phrases, the death tax. There is no death tax in America, but it, that sticks with people. They know how to sl- create meaningful slogans and to stick to them. So um, I wrote. I run a national news service now that I'm retired from the New York Times called DC Report. In fact, we started it because of Donald winning the Electoral College after he mm-hmm. lost the popular vote. And we cover what politicians do, not just what they say. And I did a piece a month or two ago, um, or actually probably last fall, about how Biden keeps saying, we're going to spend $3.5 trillion to build back better. And my column was, are you nuts? <laughs> <laughs> what you want to be telling the public is that for an investment of less than $3 per day, less than the average cup of coffee in a restaurant, we can have a society that will be wealthier, healthier, far less risk if you get sick, that your family will end up in poverty when you're old. Would you invest $3 a day to have a better future for your children? Well, son of a gun, Biden walks out on a stage and he says, you know, this is a plan to invest in the future of America. It lasted one news cycle and he went right back to, we want to spend $3.5 trillion. The Democrats seem to be, have learned helplessness, a phrase I know that you understand, to have Mm -hmm. learned helplessness when it comes to marketing. Yeah, um... I agree with that. And that is um, demoralizing, I, I, you know, because so much is at stake here. And I guess one of the reasons it's demoralizing is because the Republicans have been so adept at using cynicism. Yes. And uh, apparently cynicism, if you'll forgive the phrase, Trump's hope. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if if you're in the 90% who your life is not better than your parents or your grandparents, it's not unreasonable that your view of the world is, I will never get ahead. The better answer to that is, well, and, and this is what my economics trilogy is about, is people don't have any idea of how they are creating through little known government policies this enormous wealth at the top, and I'll give you one good simple example of this. In 20 states, politically connected companies, that is companies in favor with the then governor, have made deals that they keep the state income taxes withheld from their workers' paychecks. By the way, Rupert Murdoch's Fox News um, uh, is one of the biggest beneficiaries of this. So the state income taxes get withheld, 
They never go to the government. And uh, GE, for example, wanted to refurbish its uh, aviation plant. They build jet engines in and related equipment in Ohio. 92% of the cost of, of that investment came from the workers. The expected annual return on the investment was around 14%, which means six months after the plant opened up, they had recouped their investment. Better on out, their rate of return was infinite. Every dollar of profit was against no investment. Uh, that's, I mean, what a fantastic position to be in. And this, things like this all over the country, uh, in a whole industry that collects, you are forced to pay prices to them because they're monopolies that include not just their corporate income tax, but what's called the grossed up corporate income tax, which is the taxes on the money to pay the taxes. And they get to keep that money. Now, it's only two cents a day, according to Congress. When I reported, I, I wrote about this. I said three cents a day. Congress ordered a study. They said, no, 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 that's wrong. It's two cents a day. Okay, a penny, two pennies a day. If you can get a penny a day from every person in America, you know how much money you have at the end of the year? That adds up. $1.1 billion. So, you know, a billion here, a billion there, 10 billion over there. Pretty soon, people are struggling, and the narrow group of people at the top are getting richer and richer and richer, and it's government policy. How much time do you want to spend sitting around thinking about government policy? That's what the politicians right. are supposed to do for us. Exactly. And the Democrats have, have from time to time, and, and Republic, principled Republicans, especially in tax, have picked up things I've written and run with them. But they just, they do it for a little bit and then they go away because the campaign contributions, of course, come from the people who are getting rich by picking your pocket a penny or a dime or a dollar a day. Yeah, there are a few things that scream reform more than what you just talked about, more than I spoke earlier about, um, you know, people, uh, Republican senators, people like Drug Manchin who get so much money from the fossil fuel industry who will never uh, enact legislation that will actually help people and help the planet because uh, they won't they don't want to go against their overlords. And then, of course, the issue of corporations choosing not to leave Russia because it's, uh, it's, it's would be bad for their bottom line. Yeah, I mean, it, that is an astonishing thing. I did not realize there were 33 companies that have not walked away. I think that will turn out to be a serious policy mistake. By the way, there's a there's a relatively easy and I believe constitutional way to stop this influence of money. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Only allow huge... if you're running for Congress in a district or senator statewide, you can only receive campaign contributions from constituents in your jurisdiction. Why should Silicon Valley people in California, where I grew up? be donating to the campaigns of people running for Congress where I live in Rochester and the Finger Lakes region of New York. Uh, they shouldn't. And, and I've interviewed back when I was at the New York Times uh, over the 13 years I was there, I asked more than a hundred senators and members of Congress about fundraising and every one of them hated it. It was no, it was humiliating. Right. It was, it was debasing. And I'd say, well, what about fundamental reform? <laughs> They're risk averse. No, 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 no. They know this system. They don't want to risk another system. But if we simply said you can only receive campaign contributions from someone who lives in the jurisdiction that you want to represent, 
it would have a dramatically different effect on who gets elected to Congress. And, and, and we need to stop the dark money business. And the Supreme Court will never allow this under this Supreme Court. Right. But there's a way to solve that. All state governments, have, legislatures have to do is say, we're giving you your corporate charter. Corporations are creatures of the government. They're created by license. They have no right to exist, unlike you and me in this audience. Right. And you simply put in the rules, you may not make campaign contributions. You may not reimburse executives for campaign contributions. And you, will, you won't completely eliminate their influence, but you'll radically reduce it. Because what happens now is if you are a member of Congress or a senator, your constituency isn't the voters. No. It's the donors. It's what I, the term... A, a term now widely used in our society that I coined a long time ago, the political donor class, or some people just call it the donor class. And that's who makes these decisions. And, and that's not democracy. That's corpocracy. Exactly. And, and as we're seeing now in a 50-50 Senate, split Senate, that allegedly the Democrats have the majority because of Vice President Harris, uh, the needs of the voters are not being met by any stretch of the imagination um, because only 96% of the ruling party is on the same page. It's, right. it, it's absurd. I mean, let's not even get into the fact that, you know, 50% of the Democratic senators represent 40 more million people and, and right. the Electoral College. Well, yeah, the Senate is inherently undemocratic. It is state land area based, not right. population based. Yes. Uh, and, and you know, I suppose we could address that if we did a couple of things. California could divide into two states, not north and south. The natural divide, and I say this as someone who grew up there um, oh. and lived there for 36 years, it's east-west. You should have coastal California and inland California. Uh, we could do the same thing with uh, and Texas could decide to do that. I mean, But we need to somehow address this inherent uh, anti-democratic uh, problem. The Senate was intended by the framers to be a break on rapid and uncertain change, but this is much worse than a break on rapid and uncertain change. Yeah, I honestly, I think it was just very short-sighted of them because, uh, you know, how would they know? Sure. What, how could they predict where, where things were going? Nobody could. Nobody exactly. just as one of the things I teach my students uh, in my course on regulation is um, back when Leonardo da Vinci did drawings, indicating he understood how you could build an airplane or at least a glider. No one gave a moment's thought to the need for air traffic control and aviation law. Even when we learned how to shoot electricity through a kind of rock called bauxite and make alumina, which eventually becomes aluminum, and build these aluminum tubes, and then to take the uh, residue from ancient forests and turn it into jet fuel, and take the tubes and push them through the air, nobody could have thought of that 500 years ago. In fact, nobody could have thought of that 120 years That's ago. Right. Things, the law always follows experience. Well, we've got really troubling experience now that our democracy is much less safe than we imagined because right. nobody imagined that you would have a madman like Donald, a know-nothing, absolute know-nothing like Donald, who is deeply mentally ill in the White House. And our worst presidents, Andrew Jackson, whose image hung in Donald's Oval Office, 
he at least tried to do what he thought was best for the country. I mean, the man was a murderous, racist slaveholder, but he didn't say, oh, this is my chance to get stuff for me. It was, this is my chance to make the country better. Chester Arthur, same thing, came out of Tammany Hall, became an honest man in the White House. And, you know, what happens if we get Donald in the form of someone else who has all of his instincts and all of his charisma, but is a competent manager, a hard worker, and understands how government works? Well, kiss your liberties goodbye. Right. Well, and in the context of a Republican Party that's totally cool with it, which, by the way, I don't think most people thought five years ago or six years ago. Mary, when I was, I'm Donald's age, so I'm older than you. In the 1960s, if a high school or junior high school teacher had said to me, the day will come when Republican leaders will denounce American intelligence agencies, they will say they trust the leader in the Kremlin. I would have gone right to the principal's office and said, you need to get a, a, a somebody with butterfly nets because we got a teacher who's off the rails crazy. But that's what we're seeing. The people who brought us McCarthyism and and Richard Nixon's investigations, you know, and claims that Hollywood was overrun with communists is now the party that is up until the Ukraine attack with Putin. Tucker Carlson, the number one talk show host on television, literally, I call him Tucker, quote, I'm rooting for Russia, close quote, Carlson. Yeah. Now he's trying to back away from that. Yeah. But this is this is very scary stuff. And David... <laughs> Let's be clear. It's very obvious, and I hope more than I can possibly say that this does not happen. But if Donald is allowed to get back in, and he would have to be allowed, right? This is not something that he can do on his own. If he's allowed to run, if he's allowed to get back in, um, the Republican Party en masse will be pro-Putin again. Oh, yes. no, I knows what Russia will have done in, in, in the meantime. Yeah, the, I mean, one of the problems with all the people who call themselves patriots and then speak well of Vladimir Putin is what they really believe in is democracy for me and people who look like me or believe like me. Uh, no, democracy is for everybody. I have, in a lot of my career, defended people I thought in, in articles that were just horrible, but that's not the point. Um, if, if you're not defending everyone's right, you're not defending anyone's right. And then layer on to this, uh, Antonin Scalia's crazy, I don't know any other word to put on it, interpretation of the Second Amendment and all of the Second Amendment absolutists. Yep. Um, in fact, one of the little jokes, I, I, I make it clear, I'm making a joke to my students, is I, I say, you know, the Second Amendment doesn't refer to guns. It talks about arms. Well, a nuclear weapon is an arm. We now mm-hmm. have nuclear weapons that you can literally fit in a backpack. I mean, heavy, it's going to weigh 50 pounds. But we can build a nuclear weapon. We have built them that will fit in a backpack. So if we're going to be absolutists, I want a personal nuclear weapon because nobody's going to mess with me. And, of course, yeah. you know, it's illegal to have a nuclear weapon. We, of course, have limits on guns. You can't buy a howitzer and park it in your lawn. Uh, yet. And, and, and yet we allow these killing machines, the semi-automatic, or as I prefer to call them, rapid-fire rifles and pistols, and we see slaughter after slaughter after slaughter, and people say, oh, no, we, we can't have any controls because of the Second Amendment. We have all sorts of limits on things. The First Amendment isn't unlimited. Nope. Um, if, if you want to revive the Aztec religion, 
you're absolutely free to do so. But the moment you put the virgin on the, sl on the slab of the altar, I'm sorry, and raise your knife, just raising your knife, that's a crime. We arrest you. You go to prison. You actually carry through with it. We put you in prison. That's right. Um, and, and we have lots of limits like that. No right is absolute. And the Constitution, as one of our Supreme Court justices said, is not a suicide yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, your point about the Second Amendment is very well taken. And I think it explains in part, because this is something I've, I've really been trying to figure out, um, the, the kind of loss of importance of human life. In fact, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, uh, a scholar of authoritarianism, yeah. said, said that to me because uh, you know, I was like, what, why does people not seem to care that they're dying, that they're putting their children in danger? We're talking about COVID. And she sort of traced it back to the unfettered uh, Second Amendment, the unfettered uh, ability to own any kind of weapon you want, generally speaking, of the kind of weapons people have access to, not nuclear weapons, but rapid fire that the kinds of weapons you don't use to go hunting because they will destroy the animal you're killing, right? There's a foundational problem there. And that is um, uh, my parents were non-believers, but I was required to go to a whole bunch of different Sunday schools and Catholic mass and synagogue, et cetera, because mm -hmm. my parents said, you need to understand all of this to be, be to operate in the world. Same approach I took with my eight children. And if you get religious training, you learn about the sanctity of human life. Doesn't mean everybody gets the message, but you certainly get drilled into your head the sanctity of human life. And that's, you know, my, I, every semester I ask my new students about their background. How many of you, you know, went to Sunday school or shul or catechism? No, almost nobody. Right. Just nobody. Um, and so they don't have any grounding in in moral values. And Syracuse is, you know, I mean, it's not the very best schools in America, but it's not, you know, middle of nowhere, Texas mm -hmm. junior college. It's a serious top flight school. And I'm, I'm floored by this. And when I go lecture at other colleges, I sometimes ask these questions. And the same thing, we're not teaching fundamentally the sanctity of human life, except in the context of abortion, where that's just a political discussion that has nothing to do with with reality uh, and, and really distorts people's thinking. But it, it seems to me that the worst purveyors of the seeming lack of concern for the so-called sanctity of human life are white evangelicals. Oh, so, yeah. Right? Because, so, because they're, they're not fundamentally having jousted with many of them on call-in radio and whatnot, uh, I constantly encounter people who call themselves Christians and they're faux Christians. Right. Uh, and, and Donald is sort of the perfect example of that. In his book, Think Big, he spends six pages denouncing Christians as fools, idiots, mm -hmm. and schmucks. And he means that last word in the most vile Yiddish sense. Yes, he does. And he says, my life philosophy is one word, revenge. Well, you cannot be a Christian and believe in revenge. I mean, if there's anything else about Christianity, you cannot believe in revenge and call yourself a Christian. Right. And he said this as recently as the National Prayer Breakfast, his last year in office, where uh, one of the speakers, I think it was Andy Biggs from the American Enterprise Institute, who's a religious man, said, 
you know, we need to forgive people. And Donald got up and said, I can't do that. I can't do that. And so, you know, if, if Jesus came back to life to America, you know, if you think that he was tough on the money changers in the temple, uh, he'd just, you know, go, all of these people, who are you? You, you don't have no idea what I came and I wrote and, or, or people say I said. You have no idea whatsoever. Yeah. And that, that's actually a really good segue. I, I always end the show with two questions. But before we get to that, um, I've been wanting to talk to you about this other thing and revenge is the word. Um, and this is personal. Before the 2016 election, you wrote about this uh, in your book. And uh, you, again, you're the only person I saw speaking about it, is um, what Donald and his siblings did um, after I, my brother and I sued my grandfather's estate, um, you know, our family health insurance, which all of us had had since we were born right. was canceled and whatever, I'll, I'll be fine. But, uh, I had a, a newborn nephew who was in the neonatal intensive care unit, uh, for months who really needed <laughs> that health yeah, insurance. Very much. Um, so the question is, you can say we're a pretty misogynistic country. People think that it makes Donald a, a more appealing candidate to certain people and a tougher, cooler guy if he's sexually harassing women with with impunity. And some uh, women think that. Yeah, some women, plenty of women, uh, most white women uh, or the majority of white women. Um, people could say that, you know, he had every right to screw me over because as in his words, I disrespected his father, which I didn't do because his father was dead when all of this was going down. However, we're talking about a baby. Um, we're talking about other things he've, he's done that you would think would cross a line for anybody. So one question is why didn't stories like that, which should have that more than anything else should have torpedoed his candidacy. Why didn't it get traction and why didn't anybody seem to care? Well, it didn't get traction because the story was originally broken by a really good reporter, Heidi Evans, who was a colleague of mine at the LA Times back in the uh, 70s and the 80s. Mm -hmm. And um, it would require, you know, a lot of legwork to go and do that story. Uh, mm -hmm. Most journalism is an accurate, absolutely accurate, reliable account of the official version of events yesterday. The White House made a statement. Uh, company X uh, announced the profits or a new product. An airplane fell out of the sky. It, 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 but there's relatively little coverage that is enterprise, where you do it on your own. Mm -hmm. And in the, this case, where um, uh, your brother has a, a baby born who has serious health problems right out of the womb and lifelong expenses, and Donald cancels the insurance because uh, you, the two of you are challenging the, the way that uh, the money that, that uh, would have gone to, to your father, uh, Fred Jr., mm -hmm. was reduced to virtually nothing. And mm -hmm. the money was divided up by the other four siblings. Now, we have in New York, as everybody who watches Law & Order knows, something called a depraved indifference statute. What Donald did by canceling the insurance to gain leverage over money wasn't depraved indifference. It was depraved, period. 
he literally was prepared to kill a child for money. Um, that, that goes right to the heart of his character. One of the things he benefited from, however, was the, the document that every significant news producer and editor that is decider of what's going to be news in this country reads every day is the New York Times, as they should. The editors of the Times during the campaign, the politics editor was someone who didn't have the chops to do the job, was totally unqualified for that job. Don't know how that came about, That, but it was a mistake. I mean, corporate companies make mistakes. They put the right. wrong people in the wrong job. Right. Um, uh, and the Times editors had this view that everybody in New York knows that Donald's a crook and a terrible human being. And when I would go, went back to some of my editors at the Times and said, you're missing what's going on here. Uh, they would say, everybody knows that. And I'd say, yeah, but people in Keokuk, Iowa and East Texas think he is a living God. Right. You know, you, 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 you need to think about the country and what other people think. And so the arrogance of the particularly the Times, but the rest of the news media as well, was significant in this. Uh, and Hillary Clinton didn't make an issue out of it. She should have uh, really run with it. Uh, she didn't. I mean, she was, after all, uh, if she'd been elected, I'm absolutely persuaded that she, her focus would have been on children. Her whole yeah. life record was about uh, especially disadvantaged children of all races. Uh, so uh, it's also difficult for most journalists to get away from what they're told is the news. Mm. I don't have any trouble with this because I didn't go to journalism school. When I was a teenager, I was in high school, I was married, I had a kid on the way, and I became a reporter. And so when they would hand out a press release, the local daily would just rewrite. I would look at the budget material in it, and I would do long division, and I would explain it in terms that made sense to people because I didn't know any better. And But mo journalists are trained. You never get in trouble for just telling the official version of events. Well, the official version of events isn't the truth. It's the official version of the events. <laughs> and right. you need to get at the unofficial version of events as well. What are the facts that the official version doesn't cover or hide? And most journalists just do not do that, no matter how good they are. It's not in the way they approach their job. Yeah, and here we are. Yeah. So you have two questions, you said? Yes. Um, first of all, thank you so much. I know we're going a little long, but this has been fascinating. Um, but, you know, things are tough. There's a lot of horrible things going on and you, you're mired in it. So um, I'd like to know, uh, and other people would like to know, what gives you hope in these relatively dark times and how do you hang on to it? Well, we have survived transitioning from an agricultural economy to an industrial economy to a digital economy, and we are on the cusp of the genetic economy mm. that will change the world far more than any of these previous changes. We survived the British sacking the White House and burning it. We survived uh, Andrew Jackson. Uh, we survived a civil war in which... Um, Two and a half percent of, I think that's right, uh, 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 massive deaths if, uh, in, during the Civil War. We only had 30 million people. Yeah, two and a half percent of Americans died in the Civil War. And by the way, about uh, somewhere around 15 percent of those who died were black Americans. That's right. Uh, many of them as soldiers. You know, we, we survived thing after horrible event, after mistaken policy. 
uh, and we're still here. So we're inherently a resilient society. The the we're an idea. We're 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 not a hereditary kingdom like the Emirates or Saudi Arabia. We are an idea, and we've proven flexible to that. Um, I worry that the rapid pace of change, which is going to continue to accelerate long into the future, yeah. many people can't cope with. I mean, that's why I think we're seeing fundamentalist uh, Muslims, Jews, Christians, Buddhists, Hinduists all around the world. It's like, no, I want to go back to what I had. It doesn't right. exist anymore. And it never did. There was never a white picket fence America. That was right. television. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, people say, oh, there'll never be more, a newspaper reporter as good as so-and-so. Nonsense. There are young people coming along all the time who want to do right. it, and most of them will be so-so, and a few of them will really matter. Same thing with politics, law, medical research, new inventions. Um, uh, I, I never thought I was in the business of solving problems. I was in the business of revealing problems and seeing if people want to deal them, deal with them, but they are essentially problems you manage. Or as a, uh, a head of a boys and girls club uh, told me years ago when I was writing about the decline of United Way uh, for a big front page New York Times Sunday article, he said, uh, United Way's the slogan right now is we solve problems. He said, I don't solve problems. I'm in the business of getting kids who are 10 years old to 18 years old without getting arrested. Mm. And so long as there are new 10 year olds, there will be boys and girls we need to get to 18 without ruining their lives. It's a process. It's something we manage. So uh, fundamentally, you know, the world is the way it is, but it, over time gets better. Uh, we're far less violent than we were 100 years ago. In fact, we're far less violent than we were 40 and 30 years ago. Mm. But of course, then there's the Monty Python line about there's progress, but then the dark ages came. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> yeah. Now, so what's the other one? Just how do you hang on to it? And I think you answered oh, it, you know. Yeah, because, you, you just, I mean, what else are you going to do? You're just going to, oh, my goodness, it's all falling apart. I'm going to sit down and cry. Some people uh, are. That's not going to get you anywhere. Um, no. you, do, you do what you can do and try to make the world a better place. And that includes calling out people who benefit by making it a worse place. And there's a lot of work we have done to create a more perfect union. But, you know, our, our Constitution, in my view, and the way I teach it is, our Constitution is premised on the notion that if you ennoble the human spirit and provide an ordered system of liberty, we will see how far our species can go. You cannot go in a dictatorship, uh, in a theocracy, you, the way you can if you give people the maximum amount of freedom that's consistent with order. And that should be our focus. What can we become, uh, no matter what our travails are now? And in all of my books on Donald, in the Temples of Chance, my 1992 book, that's about 40% about Donald and the casino business, and then in The Making of Donald Trump, um, uh, it's even worse than you think. And the new book, The Big Cheat, what I'm trying to do is get people to understand that these aren't just random events that come from nowhere. They have context and meaning. And if you read them, lots of things will make sense to you. And that grows out of the theory, which I used to teach my students, and that has motivated my career since I was in graduate school and a professor dressed me down for an answer I gave. Uh, if you learn things at the level of principle and theory, uh, 
The mechanics will be obvious and you will see things other people don't see and understand how the world works. Beautifully said. And uh, I, I wish, I hope we will start teaching our children that from a very young age, because I think it would change a lot. Um, David K. Johnson, thank you again. Uh, this has been fantastic. Your work is invaluable. Uh, it has helped me uh, keep things in perspective and understand things that I didn't necessarily have an insight into, even though he's my uncle. Um, so uh, keep up the amazing work. And I know... Um, so many appreciate what you're doing. So thanks. Well, thank you very much, Mary. I appreciate your having me on. All right. Stay safe. Take care. I am ready to answer some of your questions. I love this part. Um, it's great to hear from you guys. So if you do have anything you want to ask me next week, you can send your questions to mary at politicon.com and I'll get to as many of your questions as I can. So first up, we have from Kathleen in Simi Valley, California. Uh, do you think uh, Trumpsters, Republicans, really believe that their politicians are not involved with Russia and the dark money coming from there? Or is it acceptable to them as long as it keeps them in power? I'm not really sure. I, I think that um, they'll believe whatever they're told. Uh, even if it contradicts something they've been told five seconds earlier. Uh, I mean, we see this all the time. Donald says one thing and then he completely contradicts himself and then he contradicts himself again. And he says three versions of what his truth uh, and there doesn't need to be any logical consistency and people will just keep up and believe whatever, whatever he's saying in the moment. Um, but I think the bottom line is at this point, this, this party uh, and the people uh, continuing to vote for Republicans only care that the party stays in power. Um, doesn't matter how, doesn't matter where the money's coming from, um, and it doesn't matter what they have to do to keep it. So sadly, I, I think that is the case. From Kate in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, will we ever see an atheist elected to public office, let alone the Supreme Court? It seems we have to believe in some God, but so many seem like they're just pretending. Um yeah, it's it's quite uh, something that for a country that allegedly has a separation between church and state, um, the need to be religious has become more and more explicit. I mean, it's been implicit for a long time, but it's becoming explicit. And by religious, I, I mean, generally speaking, uh, some kind of Christian um, or Protestant, really. So I don't, I, I think it's unlikely. Uh, it, I mean, it depends on the office, but um, president, no, I don't think there's any way uh, that an atheist could successfully run for president. I hope I'm wrong um, because I think generally speaking, uh, we we know that atheists are, are more open-minded and less judgmental about things like religion um, or the different religions than people um, who are certainly on the more fundamentalist end of the spectrum. Um, so yeah, it seems to be a litmus test now. And that goes against, I think, uh, what the founders had, had in mind. And that's a shame. Um, 
And just to add really quickly, because part of what ha- what's happening now on the right is this this trend towards trying to convince people that America is a Christian country. America is not a Christian country. Um, but that is a very dangerous belief that's taking hold in certain segments of the population, which um, may not end. Be- it may not end well uh, if if we don't figure out how to diffuse that. Uh, from Tanny in Austin, Texas. I agree with Eugene from last week. We need loud Democrats resisting. I think we need a live aid or a comic relief with a march. Where the hell is rock and roll? Some of those people are multimillionaires and it's time to give back. Think it will ever happen. I, I think a lot of, a lot of um, the kinds of um, protests or events that we might have seen given the um, deep hatred of Donald on the left and uh, the terror he inspired uh, if if he ha- were to have gotten a second term were put on hold because of COVID, you know? Uh, COVID put Democrats at a di- disadvantage in a way it didn't put Republicans. Like, for example, Democrats weren't going door to door before the elections because of COVID. You know, re- Democrats were very conscious of not doing anything or having any kinds of events that would get people sick or kill them. <laughs> Whereas Republicans didn't care. I mean, we saw that with the rallies, you know, uh, so Republicans had a better ground game. They had um, more in-person events because they were not, they were perfectly willing to um, risk the lives of their supporters, which I still can't quite wrap my head around. Uh, I think things will be very different this time around, um, assuming that we we finally do get a complete handle on COVID, which we haven't quite done yet. Um, I really would like to see some massive events uh, in advance of the 2022 midterms, uh, because as I, you guys are going to get sick of my saying this, but uh, I think that we cannot overstate how important those elections are. I mean, we really, really, really can. Um, From Mrs. Strong, would you support laws being changed to require presidential campaign nominees to take the same mental and psych evaluations as generals in the military and make them prove they're stable enough to command troops and handle nuclear weapons? Yeah, I would absolutely support it, but I don't think it's something that can be done. I think it's something that would have to be handled by the parties. And, you know, the Republicans could have gotten rid of Donald in 30 seconds if they had just demanded that their candidates um, show their tax returns. And they weren't even willing to do that. So mm, I, I, I don't have a lot of uh, hope that that can happen. But again, as, as, as always, the solution to a lot of these problems is to elect as many Democrats as possible. And then maybe we can affect some real change uh, in how elections are structured and how government is structured and how the constitution can finally become a document that um, gives us an actual democracy uh, in which all of us are equally represented. Uh, That is it for tonight. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us for our second live broadcast. And thank you to David K. Johnston. Uh, It was such a pleasure to have him here. I've been wanting to ask him questions for a very long time. So it was great uh, to hear what he had to say. Um, Please come every Thursday, 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern time, 4 o'clock 
Pacific time. Sorry, I always forget that part because I'm from New York and uh, Eastern time is the only time in which I think. Um, we're at the Politicon YouTube channel. So I wa- would really appreciate it if you liked us, subscribed and click the bell. Because if you click the bell on YouTube, you will be alerted every time a new episode is upcoming. Uh, so again, like, subscribe to the Politicon channel and click on that bell uh, so you get alerted to new episodes. Also, follow us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts, except, of course, Spotify. And give us a five-star review because it really does help people find the show. Again, if you have any questions for me, you can send an email to mary at politicon.com and I will get to as many of your questions as I can. Thank you again for being here. Uh, It was such a great show with David K. Johnston. I look forward to seeing you next week. Same place, same time. And in the meantime, stay safe.